Welcome to We Are What We Buy with Dr. Michael Solomon. We'll take a deep dive to look at the patterns, habits, brands, and benefits that drive your customers to buy. The tips and concepts you'll hear on the program will have you standing head and shoulders above your competition. Now here's your host, Dr. Michael Solomon. Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. Michael Solomon, your host on We Are What We Buy. Each week, we take a deep dive into an aspect of consumer behavior. So whether you're a professional marketer, an interested customer, or both, you're going to learn something valuable about how we interact with the marketplace. So let's get started. Today's topic is a central one for any kind of marketer or consumer. How do we decide what to buy? For any product or service, or even nonprofit cause or organization, we are buried under an avalanche of options. Just think about the supposedly simple act of buying a tube of lipstick or a tie. How many hundreds of shades or patterns are available? And, and that's the simple stuff. Our three guests today bring very different perspectives to the core issue of how we discover and choose among competing options. We're going to start with a really practical look at a process we all engage in, finding products online. As you know, the search business is huge. Google alone makes well over 40 billion, yes, I said billion, in revenue every year from its search engine. And most of us realize that when we type in a search term, whether it's dog washing services or home theater systems or whatever we want to find, we come up with hundreds or even thousands of listings. But we probably only click on the first few. For that reason, there's a constant war going on in the trenches to figure out how to use SEO, search engine optimization strategies, to increase the odds that your listing will pop up near the top. My first guest is a seasoned veteran in that war. Heather Lutze has built her business into a multi-million dollar search engine marketing company, the Findability Group. She works with many businesses to help them create websites and other content that will get them noticed. At the end of the day, it's all about findability, and Heather knows all about that. So, Heather, welcome to the show. Thank you. That was a wonderful introduction. <laughs> <laughs> You're quite welcome. And, and um, uh, you know, I know there's a lot of business owners out there who, who are fighting this battle all, all the time, trying to get noticed by consumers. So, so maybe we can start by, uh, I'll ask you, what are some of the biggest mistakes that business owners make when they try to do online marketing? Yeah, I always say that uh, uniqueness is the enemy of findability. And what I mean by that is we've been taught as entrepreneurs, business owners, marketers, that unique is better. Unique selling propositions, unique logos, unique taglines. And the problem with that is it just doesn't work for online marketing. And this is probably the number one mistake I see businesses make that makes their online marketing fail or just not work as effectively. So that, that really is counterintuitive because, like you say, I mean, we, we always try to, and, and I even I teach my students in, in marketing, it's all about competitive differentiation. You know, how are you different from everyone else? And you seem to be saying the opposite. So mm -hmm. can, you, can you maybe elaborate on that? You know, what's a tangible example for a business of, 
you know, the value of not being unique in, in terms of how they, uh, the content that they put up on their website? Yeah, so one of my clients is a um, bulk toothpick and bamboo product manufacturing company named Pick On Us. Now, this was a name they picked way long time ago when his father had started the business. I came in because the company just wasn't growing. And when we looked at their website presence, Pick On Us, although a, a clever sl slogan, was also ranking for bullying websites. Pick on me, pick on you, pick on us. So that was the first problem. Then they had coined the frame picks, the word picks, P-I-C-K-S. Optimized everything around the word picks. Well, when you went to Google and you search for the word picks, you get NFL and you get guitar picks. Nowhere on that page are any toothpick or bamboo products. So we had to completely readjust their thinking around the uniqueness was actually hurting them because they really hadn't put their ear to the ground and figured out that they were bamboo product manufacturers. They sell millions of bamboo products to hotels, cruise ships, large restaurant groups. So we, I've spent the last four years riding their ship to speak like the way that those buyers would speak. Perceived value, um, higher, uh, lower food cost, um, earth-friendly uh, catering, earth-friendly weddings. So all of that was how people in the general population are searching. We have access to data that traditional marketing never had access to unless they paid a lot of money. And now that data is easily accessible. And yes, you're right, we do, once they get to the website, Michael, then we can have a differentiation of how we're different than the competitors. So, you know, what, what I'm hearing you say is, you know, I'm thinking in the old days, at least magazine writers got paid by the word. So every word is valuable. And it's kind of similar here, I think, because what I hear you saying is that, you know, we're all tempted just to, just to write all kinds of flowery praise about our, whatever our product or service is. But I think the way that you approach the language is quite different because it's much more strategic. And I know you go through a process where you identify specific words or phrases that really, uh, I guess you would call optimize uh, the, the website. Can, can you talk a little more about that? You know, the, the idea that, that we're not necessarily writing what we want to write about the product, but what we think people are going to click on, which is, a, I think, a very different mindset for most of us when we're trying to create a, some kind of communication about our, what we do. Yeah, I would say it's hard to see the label when you're inside the bottle. <laughs> you know, it's hard for us to take ourselves out of our business and really look at what our potential customers are searching for uh, and then matching our content development strategy to that demand. So I always say, like, let's put our, e our ear down on the street and let's listen to the street language. What is currently in play that I can then get in front of and then talk to them about what I offer? And this is a very, very different strategy than what we've been taught since the day one of marketing. One of, the, one of my favorite tools is a tool called KeywordsEverywhere.com. KeywordsEverywhere.com is a very simple tool that anyone who's listening to this can install through Chrome. It's an add-on on Chrome, keywordseverywhere.com. 
And what it does is it will integrate into Google search results. It will integrate the search volume by keyword on the page. So you're really able to get a bird's eye view of what are the consumers searching for versus what do I think I want to be found for? Very, very different philosophies. Like I work with thought leaders all the time and you know, they have a, they have phantasm and they've decided that phantasm is their word. So they bought phantasm.com. Their book title is phantasm. Three simple ways to be fantastic. Their keynote is phantasm. And of course they use the phantom phantasm hashtag. Now the problem with this is they've made all that up. So they are personally responsible for branding all of that. But what happens is you never asked if they even cared in the first place. Yeah, so, you know, it almost seems like, you know, it's kind of like a politician who, who doesn't say what he or she is in favor of until they see the polls. Um, right. You're, you're taking a much more strategic approach to, to putting words on, on the website. And what you, I guess what you're saying is that just be, that the, the more creative you are, probably it's going to come back to bite you in some way. And, and again, that's a very, very different mindset. Just remember that you have to balance the findability with the creativity. Don't let creativity rule everything. When we're a small or medium-sized business, we don't have the luxury of time or money in most cases. So the quicker I can help my clients, the underdogs, if you will, to get in front of the right kind of searches, then they can say, you may be looking for this, but here's our alternative. So it's just about wrapping your thought leadership around what people are currently talking about in search. And you're able to have much faster market traction, a lot more visitors to your website, and you're findable to people who don't know you exist but should. So yeah, I'm asking you to pay attention to data that as business owners we've never had access to. I just gave you a free tool that'll tell you exactly what people are searching for, how much they search per month for that one exact phrase. I mean, that's a game changer in marketing. We've never had access to that kind of data. Of course, everyone's talking about SEO and that, you know, the search engine business industry that you're a part of. And then we have the broader umbrella of online marketing. Um, are they the same thing? Is, is online marketing just basically getting, your, getting the right words on the website or is it something more than that? No, it's, it's much deeper than that. I think traditional SEO, yes, is, has been about pandering to the robot, the Google robot. Uh, I'll write as much content as, as, as filled with as many keywords as possible, and we'll just see how that goes. Well, the problem with that relationship is that typically when people find that content, they, they know it's for Google and not for them. So it's important to strike a balance between how people want to search what they want. Remember, all of these clicks, all of these impressions, all of this activity is human beings. Human beings typically think alike based on certain topics. Now, there's always trending, right? You, you know all about, you know, fashion trends and there's, you know, social trends and trending hashtags, trending phrases. But the trends is not what we're looking for. The, what we're looking for is just the way the human lexicon does not change around specific topics. It just doesn't. People tell me all the time, oh, it must be so, you know, it must be uh, really hard to keep up with your business. I'm like, not really because I keep up with human nature. Are there ways in which people vary based on time of year? Yes. Based on their own personal passions? Yes. 
But at the end of the day, as marketers, we need to get in front of as many people that are interested in our product and service. And those phrases don't tend to change. It's the street language. That's how, how I talk about a coffee. There might be a fancy cloud coffee that comes out and everyone's crazy about it. But at the end of the day, I just want my coffee in the morning. And I think what we forget as marketers is that uniqueness is not always the answer. When you talk to the larger group, then you're going to resonate with more people in that group. And then if you're talking about coffee in the morning, and then you, you, people are typing in, where do I have coffee in the morning? And you say, you know what? We have this amazing coffee shop, and here's how we source our beans, and here's how we named our company, and here's our mission statement behind it, and here's the charity we donate with. All of that latter part of that conversation, I did not care about. I just wanted a good cup of coffee. But when I got to the website, I was super impressed by everything else they had to offer. So remember that human nature is what you're looking at through search data. So you can be findable for the absolute wrong keyword. You could be number one for a keyword that no one has ever searched. And people are like, what? Yeah, if I make up a word and I optimize for it, I will rank number one for it. It doesn't mean anyone ever searched about that or cared about that. Wow. Yeah, that's a, that's a really great way to think about it. I, I love that. Um, well, you know, let's, let's get down to the nuts and, and bolts. I want to ask you a question I ask most of my guests. And that, you know, I know you've worked with big companies, with small companies. You've been in the tech industry a long time. Uh, if I'm a really small business, you know, I'm a startup or something like that, I know I've got to have a website to be competitive, but, you know, what, what can I do to, to compete in this huge data-driven world, you know, just at least to get, to get a foot into the race? Yeah, and I actually have smaller companies that rank under Alibaba. They rank under Amazon. Um, so it, it's and they rank under Walmart. So it's not so much. I mean, it's not so much about like don't focus on the competitors. Focus on the human. So a small business has to be super strategic. So I work with a small business, and they make their they call their business artistic artistic flooring by design, and they had reached a certain point in their website and it just wasn't really producing anything of value. So we went back in and we looked at how do people search for hardwood flooring? Let's go to the very basic level. So we found out that Denver hardwood flooring was the number one way people search for what they did. And we're like, okay, let's adjust to that. So we purchased a domain for $13 called denverhardwoodflooring.com. We also purchased all the social media handles with Denver Hardwood Flooring dash artistic by design. So we're not like throwing out the artistic flooring by design, but that phrase is not findable. That's their brand. In order for us to make a findable web presence, we have to start with how do they think? So when they type in <clears throat> Denver Hardwood Flooring, there's my artistic flooring by design because they've aligned themselves with how people search and not with how they want to be seen. And I think that once they see it, they're like, oh my God, this is the most beautiful flooring I've ever seen. But you know, artistic flooring by design is not findable in any way, shape or form. And so a big, a big part of what we do is really turning the tide around the uniqueness that they've attached themselves to and then you know, retrofitting them to be super nimble and super strategic. 
Now that's not nearly as sexy, but it's findable and it converts like crazy. We're out of time, unfortunately, but I know a lot of listeners are, are going to want to learn more about really this, this change of mindset. And, um, and I think to help them, you know, uh, Heather has generously offered to provide a free copy of her book, which is called Marketing Espionage, that goes into further detail about this. So yeah. uh, if, uh, if anyone is interested, and I know a lot of people will be, uh, please just email me, michael at michaelsolomon.com, and I will make sure that Heather gets all of these requests and you will get the download of her book. And, and I, I know you're going to find it to be very beneficial. So Heather, thanks so much for joining us. This is just some great insights. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. Book international speaker and renowned author Dr. Michael Solomon for your event today. Michael's presentations reveal cutting-edge trends in advertising and marketing, branding, consumer behavior, and social media. He captivates audiences with the insights he unveils during his interactive keynotes and seminars. Michael has spoken to Fortune 500 companies, top advertising agencies, associations, and branches of government on five continents and has received rave reviews. Book Michael today at michaelsolomon.com. Marketers, Tear Down These Walls, Liberating the Postmodern Consumer by Dr. Michael Solomon is a revolutionary book that explores the psychology of the consumer in today's changing times. The book is packed with information and tools you need to create winning marketing strategies for a complex marketplace. Michael encourages readers to move out of the box, to think like contemporary consumers, and do things differently. This is a reader's favorite. Order today at Amazon.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to We Are What We Buy. To reach Dr. Michael Solomon or his guest on today's program, please send an email to michael at michaelsolomon.com. Now back to We Are What We Buy. We're back, and today we're talking about one of the most crucial questions any marketer can ask. How do consumers decide what to buy? It doesn't get more basic than that or more important than that. In our first segment, you heard a very practical, hands-on perspective about how online consumers search for information before they buy. Our next guest brings a different strategic view on the purchasing environment that's based on many years of cutting-edge research. So I'm really delighted to introduce my colleague, Barbara Kahn. She is the Patty and J.H. Baker Professor of Marketing at the Wharton School at the University of Pennsylvania. And she is also the executive director of the Marketing Science Institute, a place where academics and industry experts work together to create relevant state-of-the-art knowledge and research. So 
She's a very busy lady, very productive, and uh, I'm really thrilled to have her on the show. Barbara, welcome. Well, thank you for having me. My pleasure. And, and let's, uh, let's start off by talking about some of the things that you discuss in your new book. You've written several books, but, but uh, your latest book is called The Shopping Revolution. And in that book, you document how retailing has been radically disrupted in the U.S. So can you just talk about some of that? What are the trends that, that you're seeing that lead you to label retailing as, as disruptive? And if you can give us some examples, of course, that would be great. One of the first big changes, of course, and is, is this omni-channel shopping. It sounds like you've been discussing that before. But it's this notion that it's not which channel do you want to shop at. It's that everything is one big channel. And people frequently search online and then go pick up in the store or they look in the store and they go home and buy online or they buy on their phone or whatever it is. It's really not physical or online. It's just one omni-channel experience. And that's a really different way of thinking about retail. And the retailers who were slow to realize that are really – in a bad position and they're trying to hurry to catch up. Many of those legacy retailers actually had those systems completely separate. And that's a real problem when the consumer just doesn't see it that way. The second thing that having this omni-channel approach does is it changes um, the amount of data that retailers can collect about consumers. And we're now in the world of big data. And big data says that um, people you know, the, the retailers know what you search online for when you go into physical stores, when you're on your phone, all sorts of information like that. And the more sophisticated retailers, of course, leverage that data to personalize and customize the offering. The other thing that I think is a really big trend, and again, this is something a lot of people have observed, is the younger consumer now is a digital native, and they shop quite differently from older consumers. They're very comfortable on their phone and they use their phone for any kind of information. They, they think of information as being communicated to them peer to peer. So they read blogs, they care about social media, they get their information in different ways. And their sense of loyalty is different. They're, they're happy to abandon legacy brands and to go into new brands. They, they can make a brand very successful very quickly, especially with the use of social media. They also value sustainability. They value companies that seem to care about the earth we live on. All of these are things that are big trends. And another really big trend is this notion of direct-to-consumer or what we call vertical brands. The idea that the internet facilitates a brand to go direct to the end user and not have to go through existing legacy retailers has changed the retail environment uh, significantly. And of course, the biggest change is Amazon. And a lot of my book is about trying to connect the dots so that you understand why Amazon has so radically changed the retailing environment. Yeah, well, that's that's a lot to chew on, and you know, there's as you point out, these are these are very fundamental changes, and and I, I'd like to talk a little bit more about Amazon in a few minutes because you you do dwell on that quite a bit, and as you should. Um, but you know, you started by talking about this this omni-channel environment, and I I can remember the days, and I know you can too, when you know the the internet was a fad and pe you know, people weren't even sure it was going to stick around and retailers, you know, the conversation they would have is, well, how much of our budget should we allocate to, to the online space as opposed to bricks and mortar? And, 
that conversation seems pretty quaint today um, because, as you point out, there really is no distinction between the two any longer. And certainly in the minds of the millennials that you're talking about and the students that you and I teach, you know, I don't think they make a distinction between being online and offline. It's just a very artificial and obsolete distinction. So when we talk about this need for omni-channel, uh, you know, at the risk of putting you on the spot, who, who do you think is doing the best job at figuring out what any college student could tell them, which is that we live in an omni-channel world? You know, I think if you really want to say who's doing the best job in omni-channel, the answer is going to be Walmart and Target because they have, and their numbers, if you've watched their numbers, are doing very well. Obviously, the big gorilla in the room is Amazon, but they don't have that many stores. Where, so it's not really omni-channel. It's mostly e-commerce. Um, but Walmart and Target do have stores, and they've refreshed their stores, and they've re-strategized the use of their stores. One of the very successful programs for Walmart, for example, is their uh, buy online, pick up in the store program. And what they realized is for a lot of people in the middle of the country who are in their cars all the time, actually getting groceries or products delivered to the door is not as easy as picking them up on the way home from work. So if they facilitate it and make it easy for customers to shop online and then they have curbside pickup delivery, that's actually easier than waiting for the Amazon delivery. And they don't charge $119 a year for Amazon Prime. So Walmart is doing very well um, in that, um, uh, really navigating that uh, online omni-channel experience. They've revamped their entire website. They've done some fantastic things. And also, um, Target has done really interesting things. They've um, they really got the Target back into the, they got the little sass back into their brand again. And they've come up with terrific store brands that people just love. They've created all these urban, smaller footprint stores near college campuses in, in cities where a lot of young people are moving. They've figured out the right merchandise to have in those cities. And they're just making the store experience very exciting. And they too have uh, leveraged this buy online, pick up in the store. So I didn't expect that question exactly because most people are focusing on Amazon. But if you really think about an omni-channel experience, it's, it's Walmart and Target that are doing the best job on that. And unfortunately, some of the department stores, they're just scrambling. They're just not getting it. Yeah. And, and you know, it's funny when you, you talk about Amazon not having a lot of stores. You know, I think that the conventional wisdom, we, we know now that Amazon has a lot of, uh, has a lot of weapons, you know, that they're deploying. But I think initially we all assumed, well, they're doing, they're doing well like any online operation, any pure play operation, because they don't have the overhead that, that uh, physical stores have. And yet now you see the reverse, right? You see Amazon starting to actually open bricks and mortar stores. And and other other companies that you write about, like like Warby Parker and so on, starting to actually al almost reverse themselves. I and mean, what? How do you interpret that that kind of movement? Yeah, I mean, I think that that's the idea behind omnichannel. It really isn't all one or the other. There is a need for physical touch, you know, touch and feel. There is a need for the social interaction. Sometimes even a you know two day delivery or one day delivery isn't soon enough. You really want it right now. And there are of course some things that you just can't do online, like healthcare, or you can have groceries delivered, but you can't eat the, the product, you know, online. Um, and so 
I think really understanding the proper mix of stores and online is the key to retail. And so when the digitally native vertical brands like Warby or Bonobos, when they open stores, which they do, they find those stores raise sales both in the store and online. And when they open these stores, because they've had data for so long, they open the stores and they look very different from traditional stores because they set them up based on a deep understanding of customer behavior. So do you think those stores, you know, are they like the concept stores that say a Nike would open, which is more about showcasing and, and building the brand as opposed to selling merchandise? Or are they just uh, a different way to fill in the channel and, and literally just sell more? What, what is the objective there? Because we're seeing this so you know, frequently now with, with these pure play companies getting into the, into the bricks and mortar area, which is, you know, is almost counterintuitive. Yeah, but you're right. I mean, the, the physical stores are serving many different purposes. So some of the physical stores for the, uh, like Nike sells on Amazon now. They sell through Foot Locker, and they also sell out direct on their own websites. And they're opening these stores, I think, primarily to build brand, um, which is what you were saying. They, they're beautiful stores. Some of the new stores they've opened in New York are just amazing. Their Chicago store is great. Um, even the stores in Philadelphia, we're not a huge city, but you know, th those kinds of things are exciting. Uh, oh, actually, they don't have the Nike store here. I was saying the Under Armour, so let me just be clear on that. But at any rate, but those are brand-building exercises, like you say. But like, say a, a digitally native vertical brand like Warby or Bonobos, when they open the store, it tends to be a not necessarily a brand. Brand is definitely part of it, but it's also a showroom for the product. Think about Bonobos. Bonobos, I think, is one of the ones who thought about this first, and it's very interesting to think through Bonobos. So Bonobos is, for those who don't know, it's a clothing store, and they originally came out with pants that were really fit every type of man. I don't know that much about how men wear clothes, but apparently the waistbands didn't fit well, or this didn't fit well, or that didn't fit well. And so one of the big selling propositions of Bonobos when it first started was that they were really well-fitting pants and so therefore they were very flattering um, and then you would buy them online and now of course if with pants and the fit is one of the things that makes sense that people might want to actually try them on before they start so they started opening up their stores so people could try on pants but because their selling proposition was fit and size and if you know anything about apparel you know there's tons of different SKUs stock keeping units so they have to have them in different fabrics and different colors and different sizes. That's an inventory nightmare. And so what they did is they opened up a guide shop or a showroom where you could come into the store and try on the pants, but you didn't buy them there. You then went home or on your phone and you ordered them online and they were delivered to your home. And so they were using the store as a showroom. Um, and that's what Warby does also. You don't buy the glasses in the store. Now, in that case, it's because frequently they're prescription. But you go into the store to try them on, to talk to somebody, to see how you think they look on you, all sorts of things like that. Um, and so those stores are being operated in a very different way. And people are really rethinking what is the purpose of physical space? Is it an advertising play? Is it a try-on play? The Nike stores and somewhat Nordstrom local is an experience play. Do you want people to interact with your product? At Nike, you can play basketball. You know, at Sephora, you try on the makeup. Is it an experience? We're really thinking about retail in radically different ways. Go, getting back to Amazon, I mean, you spent a 
tremendous amount of time and, and research, you know, looking at, at this, uh, this amazing phenomenon, uh, there is kind of a dark side to it if you're not Amazon. You know, I, I, I gave a keynote recently for the natural products industry. I said, what do you want me to talk about? They said, well, all we care about is how do we compete against Amazon? So, um, you know, it's, it's the 800-pound gorilla now. Um, is, if, if you're another retailer, and especially, you know, many of the listeners here are probably more involved with relatively small businesses how do you compete against this this uh, Goliath that we call Amazon? Yeah, and that's like was the big purpose of my book. So I introduced in my book this thing I call the Con Retailing Success Matrix. And it's a matrix or strategic framework to try to figure out what makes sense. And the big insight I had here, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you've written tons of books and um, there are a lot of marketing books out there. So what do we need another book for, for me? Um, so I went and looked at the retailing books to see what the existing retailing matrices were to see what they were arguing for strategy. And most of the retail books were based on product and logistics. They were defining retailing as how do you assort correctly? How do you merchandise a store? What product do you pick out? Very, which are obviously very important for retail. But what was missing from this previous, um, what the previous matrices was the customer. And that's what Amazon has introduced into the retail environment. And Jeff Bezos is famous for saying he's maniacally focused on the consumer. But it is true. You didn't see legacy retailers focusing on the customer experience. They were focusing on the product and on the supply chain. And what does it mean to focus on the customer experience? That is the experience that is around the product. It's almost saying the product is a commodity and you're differentiating your relationship with the customer by making sure that their experience with you is superior. So what Amazon does is they make it easier to buy the products you want to buy. I don't think people go to Amazon because they think they're going to get state-of-the-art, the very best products in the world. They think they're going to get what they need when they need it, but they're going to get it easily. It's easier to buy. It's frictionless to buy from Amazon. And that strategy is one where you're maximizing the experience around the product. It's if you want to compete against Amazon, you've got to figure out where you can be the best at something and then do that better than Amazon. And maybe it's not in Amazon's zone. Amazon is the best at this frictionless e-commerce zone. Maybe it's the best in creating a really compelling store experience. But you have to be good enough at everything else in the matrix. It's not enough to just have a fun store experience. You also have to be the right price. You have to have the right e-commerce experience. And you have to have the right products. Um, and so it's a complicated game. It's hard to summarize it in just a few minutes. But that's basically the idea. Yeah. And so speaking of buying something of value, uh, as we come to an end here, I urge everybody to check out Barbara's book, and the, the full title is The Shopping Revolution, How Successful Retailers Win Customers in an Era of Endless Disruption. Barbara, thanks so much for coming on and sharing your insights. Yeah, it's my pleasure. Thank you for having me. And we're back after a quick break. Become our friend on Facebook. Post your thoughts about our shows and network on our timeline. Visit Facebook.com forward slash Voice America. 
Book international speaker and renowned author Dr. Michael Solomon for your event today. Michael's presentations reveal cutting-edge trends in advertising and marketing, branding, consumer behavior, and social media. He captivates audiences with the insights he unveils during his interactive keynotes and seminars. Michael has spoken to Fortune 500 companies, top advertising agencies, associations, and branches of government on five continents and has received rave reviews. Book Michael today at michaelsolomon.com. Marketers, Tear Down These Walls, Liberating the Postmodern Consumer by Dr. Michael Solomon is a revolutionary book that explores the psychology of the consumer in today's changing times. The book is packed with information and tools you need to create winning marketing strategies for a complex marketplace. Michael encourages readers to move out of the box, to think like contemporary consumers, and do things differently. This is a reader's favorite. Order today at Amazon.com. Have you friended us on Facebook yet? Why not? Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for the keywords Voice America. Once you are part of our Facebook network, you'll receive daily messages about what's happening with our shows, this week's featured guests, and new happenings at the Voice America Talk Radio Network. And you can add your voice to the always active discussions on our timeline. Just go to Facebook.com forward slash Voice America or search for Voice America. You are tuned in to We Are What We Buy. To reach Dr. Michael Solomon or his guest on today's program, please send an email to michael at michaelsolomon.com. Now back to We Are What We Buy. Welcome back to We Are What We Buy, where today we're tackling the all-important question, just how do consumers decide what to buy? Our third guest brings a wealth of experience to this topic. John Greco is co-founder, chairman, and CEO of Greco Enterprises, which includes Greco Associates, a strategic advisory group, and integrated solutions provider in the for-profit and non-profit sectors, and the recently launched Marketing Impact Council. John was previously CEO of both the Direct Marketing Association and the Yellow Pages Publishers Association, which is now known as the Local Search Association. <laughs> After leading the Malcolm Baldridge National Quality Award winning AT&T Bell Laboratories Consumer Lab and Marketing Sciences Center of Excellence and holding various other executive positions at AT&T, R.R. Donnelly, and RCA. John, it's certainly an honor to have you on the show. Welcome. Well, thank you very much, Michael, and thank you for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, the pleasure is mine. Um, so today we're talking about this very broad but incredibly important question about, uh, you know, how do people decide what to buy, which is what we're all trying to figure out every day here in the trenches. So, so let me start with a very general question for you, John. What are the factors that you think pretty much universally shape, drive, and impact why and how people buy? Well, that's a, that's a great question, Michael. And as you say, it's, it's a, a very broad and important topic. Uh, and I think there are, you know, a number of factors, as you know, in the process. But to me, there are three major categories uh, that are universally applicable. And one 
is the brand of associated of what they're buying. The, the, what, what does that brand stand for? The, the terminology is the brand personality. What is it all about? The attributes of the brand. The other category is uh, the, the actual product and service itself and the attributes of it, uh, the price of it, the features of it, all the things that are you can either touch or feel or experience in some way. And then in terms of experience, the third area is really about the people associated with that product and service behind the scenes, the whole delivery system, uh, the engagement process, the user experience. Uh, so, you know, when you think about it at the brand level, um, brands do have personalities. They, they, they take on different aspects. They're aligned with causes, companies and brands, you know, whether it's Starbucks committing to open up their bathrooms, whether it's Nike taking a position on uh, whether or not Colin Kaepernick is correct or not. Uh, no matter which side of that you come down on, you're either a more of a fan of Nike or less of a fan of Nike, depending on where you, you fall. Uh, and on the product and services side, uh, the attributes, the people, all of those add up uh, to be the three, I think, common denominators that cut across all the other variables, all the other variables. You know, you, you mentioned, well, you use the term brand personality, which is music to my ears because I write about that a lot myself, and I know how important that is. Um, and the other, you know, the other piece of that, though, is I, I know, John, that you do a lot of work with nonprofit organizations, and, and you also mentioned some nonprofit initiatives. So when we think about the brand personality and we think about how uh, people decide what to buy, in, in your experience today, how much of that desire to choose one option over another is driven by the aspect of a brand's personality that relates to what they're doing, uh, you know, for the community, the uh, nonprofit services and so on? How, how important is that today? In my experience and what I'm seeing, it's, it's very important and increasingly important every day. It's becoming a bigger and bigger factor because because consumers have so many choices, uh, you know, in any product category. Uh, generally, the varieties are there, the options are there. And so therefore, at the end of the day, sometimes the decision really does fall on, okay, I can buy the same product or service from company A or company B. Which one is really aligned with things that I care about? Are they uh, focused on sustainable initiatives? Are they uh, doing good things in terms of their foundations and the, the, the kinds of causes that they support. Yeah, and I think you make, you make the great point that, you know, really the, the dynamics we're talking about here that drive consumer choice are not confined to, to products like a can of peas or a car. And, you know, a lot, of, a lot of people, you've probably seen this in the nonprofit sectors, tend to say, well, I don't need marketing, you know, I, I'm doing a good thing. And, but the problem is lots of people are doing good things, right? And so you still have to apply the, the basic principles that help us to understand, uh, you know, what shapes choice. Um, now, that's the, the way we make these decisions and obviously the information that's available to us, whether we're trying to donate or, or just buy a shirt online, whatever it is, uh, obviously big changes over the last decade or so. What, what do you think are the biggest changes you're seeing in terms of how consumers are buying, you know, whether they're, they're donating money to, to causes, whether they're buying products, uh, just in general? 
Well, I think one of the, the, the things that's enormous that perhaps is, is understated um, is the amount of data that's in the consumer's hands. We always talk, and whenever there's conversations in the industry, it's about how much data companies have about consumers and how they use that in the marketing and whether they're overusing it and whether uh, they're violating privacy. And all of those are very, very valid concerns and, and very important topics. Uh, but what is frequently overlooked is how much more data is in the hands of the consumer, how much more accessible information is, whether it's reviews, whether it's what's available through social media, the ability to share reviews very quickly. Um, the transparency is becoming extraordinarily important. So data is one. The fact that data, the, the increased amount of data is on both sides of the purchasing process, right? The buyer and the seller. The other thing I would say is um, transparency. The, the requirement of transparency is increasing. A, a great example of that that's evolved over this past decade is, is Best Buy. If you look at Best Buy as, a, as a, an example, back in around 2012, uh, they figured out that they had to either come up with a very different way of executing their business uh, or they were going to be destroyed by Amazon. Uh, and so they really took a completely different approach and said, we're going to not focus on selling products and services. That will happen by itself in its natural course if we do something else right. And that's we're changing the vision of the business. Our job is now to help consumers select the technology that they really need in their lives, whether it's the personalized or the business lives. And they, they even go as far as making it easy for you when you go into their stores. They say, we're going to use the bricks and mortar as an advantage, not a disadvantage. Uh, we're going to flip that paradigm on its ear. We're going to make that a place where people can come in and whether they buy for us or not, they're going to get information. They're going to be smart. They upgrade it. They're in their staff uh, to be able to do that. And they'll even send people out to someone's home to do an evaluation. No, purchase required. Now, that's an example of a change of a complete business and a paradigm because of the requirement of transparency, because of how much data is out there, and because of all of the online ability that and virtual shop, uh, shopping ability that Amazon and, and others offer. Best Buy said, well, let's figure out how to use um, what we have as, as, a, as a strength in terms of those physical assets. Another change uh, is in the area of loyalty programs. One of the things that, that's happened, and I think it really was said best recently by the, uh, a study that MasterCard had done and their CMO was talking about, uh, that it's really less about what is the reward and more about the overall user experience with the program because there's so many rewards programs and loyalty programs. Uh, the ability to get some kind of reward points, whatever, credits, if it's gamification, uh, points in the game, uh, in the shopping experience, all of that is, is naturally causing people to expect more and more in terms of the what. Uh, and therefore, the differentiator is the how is it delivered? Is it easy to collect those points? How do I use them? What do I have to go through? What kind of portal do I have that I can go into and experience in that? And then the other thing that I think is really important to understand is that so much of this really differs in terms of how people buy and, and how they're making the decision based on the product or service category that it is. So if it's a must-have, 
Uh, I like to put things in the categories of must-haves or wants and likes to have, right? If it's a must-have, um, as, as I look backward in the rearview mirror, <clears throat> there were the traditional must-haves, right? Food, clothing, shelter, the things at the bottom of Maslow's needs pyramid, right? In terms of what do I actually have to have to survive, right? Uh, as time has progressed, those needs to have uh, have now included over this past decade, at least, uh, and, and even more so in the last couple of years, um, the the need for connectivity to just function and survive in, in the world, right? So now, uh, you know, when, when it was enough to have a landline and a basic cable service, now if, you know, I, I really want to be able to work from home and have the right bandwidth and connectivity, I need to be looking at a different cable package or whether it's cable or Fios or whatever. Uh, and, and then that because that need is served, uh, now that puts in place an upsell opportunity for those companies to now um, bring me to different packages that may be more like one. All of this, I think, comes down to um, giving consumers clearly have more choices. Uh, and at, 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 again, they have more data at their disposal. Uh, but the, so do the companies. It's a matter of who uses that data more effectively in the process. Yeah, so clearly, you know, we're, we're seeing this data revolution that's, that's really changing the dynamics of the marketplace. So, you know, one message I'm hearing from all the great examples you're sharing is how do marketers react to these changes? And, you know, how should marketers think about their consumers? And, you know, that brings us to the to the marketing impact council which uh, which you have started and I'm, I'm proud to be a member of that uh, I know you have some thoughts about how marketers should think strategically and work with others in the organization can you just share quickly a little bit about the impact council and and how that reflects this new disruptive thinking we have to have today sure sure Michael and and, and it's basically the marketing impact council is a new method of engagement uh, for everyone in an organization, starting with the executive, starting with the C-level suite of an organization, the C-suite of an organization, uh, to come together and realize that, first of all, marketing is not just promotion and pushing a product and communicating attributes of a product uh, or selecting channels. Marketing really starts with the overall business strategy. Um, and it's the job, not just of the chief marketing officer, but of everybody on the executive team to get aligned around a common vision. And we call that big M marketing, right? Where it's, it's the responsibility of everyone to be aligned around the direction of the vision of the company. We believe that this organization and the council uh, was and is necessary because so many of the other organizations out there that are um, working in the marketing space or the advertising space, the communication space, are dealing with one piece of the puzzle. I say one part of the elephant going by. And there is really a need to bring the whole picture together to connect the dots, break down silos in organization. And as we say, really be channel agnostic, uh, technology neutral and data driven in selecting how marketing is, is executed. Uh, as well as how the initial strategy starts before the execution. And, and the final thing I'd say about it is we like to say that uh, if, if I were to ask an organization, if they had one more dollar to spend, 
for the long-term sustainable value of their brand, not to make the very next sale or the very next donation or solicit the next membership, but put that dollar to use in the best way to sustain the value of that business, the brand of that business, how would they spend it? That's the kind of thing that we address in the council. We do it through um, research. We do it through education and professional development, webinars, meetings, um, primary content that we'll create, and also interpreting uh, for our members content that others create. Uh, so we're very excited about the council and, and delighted to have you as a member. Well, thanks, and I'm excited about it as well. And uh, to my listeners, uh, John tells me that he's going to offer you a 20% discount on the first year of membership in the Impact Council if you're interested. So, John, just to finish up, can you tell folks where they can learn about the council and, and claim the discount if they're interested? Absolutely. They, they can do so by going to the council's website, which I know you'll have posted, Michael, in terms of the URL. Um, and the, um, uh, the discount code will be uh, MIC, uh, synonymous with both Marketing Impact Council and uh, the first three initials of your name, Michael. Uh, so we'll, we'll make it easy for everybody to remember. Uh, and we're, we're very excited about that and hope uh, to, to have uh, many of your listeners joining and participating in, in, in this program. Great, great. Well, John, thanks so much for your insights and uh, this is, a, I think, a, a great way to wrap up our topic for today. It's a complicated issue, but hopefully we got a little close to it. So thanks for listening, and uh, please feel free to email me with any comments or suggestions for future shows at michael at michaelsolomon.com. Please follow me on Twitter at, at Mike Solo, or check out my website, www.michaelsolomon.com So remember, we are what we buy and we buy what we are. See you next week. Thank you for listening to We Are What We Buy. Please join your host, Dr. Michael Solomon, again next Thursday at 7 a.m. Pacific Time and 10 a.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Business Channel. Until then, have a winning week. <laughs>